Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Lisa. <clears throat> so the uh, the Q and A is, is a discussion time. It usually takes a Q and A format, but you'll get time to talk across to each other and stuff like that too. And there'll be a little bit of food there. We got some lunches that you can buy super cheap if you don't want to go out and get something, especially in this. Uh, next week we're going to start a series in Acts where we'll be back to sort of like Bible passage, sermon, direct expositional preaching, which is the heart of what we do here at High Point in terms of messages. But about maybe a seventh of the time, there are times where we have to take all the pieces and bring them together systematically to deal with some kind of topic or something that's going on. Over the last couple of weeks, one of the things that we tried to do is to say, um, in order to not get co-opted into some sub-view or pulled into something that isn't a Christian way to look at how we should be part of society and culture, we better have a biblical definition. And the one I tried to give us is this one. That um, we as the, as the church believers in Christ are ambassador exiles witnessing to and embodying the redemptive message of Christ applied to the creation mandate, what, we are, what human beings were first created to do for the sake of goodness and justice through pursuing—I'm sorry, goodness and peace through pursuing justice and righteousness. Now, one of the important reasons is to realize that we are exiles. We're living in a land that's not—our home is not our home. But it is our home. That's what an exile is, Right? But our, the reason we're exiles isn't judicial, right? It's not a punishment in this case. It's because we're meant to be ambassadors to bring the message of Christ to the people we're called to love, which is the whole city and the people that we're around. <coughs> um, last week I talked about a talk by Keller. Um, Lisa's going to be putting up a blog a little bit later today um, that's going to have all this information on it, including this talk that you can listen to if you want. But one of the things that Keller said, uh, he said there are six things that the church to impact our culture have to do. We're not going to talk more about these today, but I think it's important to review these. Um, that is that if we really want to impact culture, these six things have to be done in some way by Christians together. There would need to be more Christians living long-term in cities. Cities are the culture-forming womb of any society, Right? With a better understanding of the gospel, not believing in the gospel as therapy or moralism, but really as the message of God's grace transforming everything. To do so by creating dynamic countercultures within the city. Na mainly we call those local churches, or you might say healthy local churches. For integrating faith and work, so that faith isn't something on Sunday, it's something Sunday through Sunday. Pouring our, out ourselves sacrificially for the whole city, not just the members of the Christian community and contextualization, that we actually find our neighbors where they are and answer the questions they're actually asking. Robert Benny, in a book called Good and Bad Ways to Think About Religion, said that as the church, as an organization, we can interact with the culture, society, and government in four main ways, right? One is forming Christian character, that is, make Christians and turn them loose. If the church just did that, it would do a lot. But not just in terms of a narrow gospel, like a little message, you, Jesus can be your special friend and you can go to heaven and won't you be a nice person. But to actually teach the whole Christian faith, what has been called sometimes the Christian worldview. To see all of life biblically and God, in a way that's gospel-centered and to really deeply form Christian conscience is part of that. So we have to form character. We have to form character by forming conscience. And then externally, sometimes the church does have to speak, either by drawing attention to and making arguments for things to try to freely persuade others, and then there are sometimes, and we'll talk about this a little later, that we just have just things that we have to fight for. I don't mean violently, but we'll have to actively oppose other people that are actively opposing us. And we're going to have to do it actively and in love. And so we, we are a part of society. We live in the world, yet we don't want to be 
of the world. We don't want to be fused. We want to be legitimate, Jesus-believing, viable, living Christians. Yet, we don't want to be prudes who don't exercise our liberty and don't impact the world. And so we, we need to avoid cultural and political capture. And so this is my short list of, of ways in which the culture has uh, captured uh, even me, right? And things I think you should be aware of. Uh, how we invest our free time, including our hobbies, right? Um, earlier I was talking a, a bit about sports and how I can sometimes get deeply involved in sports. When I was dating my wife, she'll tell you that we couldn't go out for a date unless I watched the Notre Dame da game, the, the Cubs play, and then afternoon football. Then after all of that, then we could go for a date. Uh, you know? So I was really into sports. And so one of the things that we can uh, enjoy all the bounty that's in life is we can invite others into our environment. So there might be somebody I'm trying to witness to, or I might need to connect more with Christian friends so I can invite them in when I watch the Super Bowl tonight. Hey, you can invite me over to watch the Super Bowl, right? And, and, and do two things at one, enjoy Christ and also have fellowship. Um, the fashions we wear, I got teenagers at home. And so, and then a 20 year old. So even still, I have to say, do you really want to wear that? Do you really want that fragrance, right? You know, so we're always constantly trying it's to get liberty. It's kind of funny you say that because both ahead. your kids are boys. Yeah, isn't that something? <laughs> isn't that something, right? You know, they're going to start saying that to you. I'm Dad, sure. are you sure you want to? Oh, they have many times. They have many times. <laughs> But we, we want to be modest. We want to be careful about how we project our, ourselves in society. Uh, the music we listen to, one of the things I've learned from my wife is that I do need to listen to a little bit more secular music so that I can understand what my kids are listening to. And so, not, so, so, so sometimes I want to be involved so, I, so I'm not dated. I can be a little more relevant. I can understand what's going on in, in music. The values we embrace, and then the last one is the entertainment choices we make. Next slide, Nick. Um, so I, I like films, and one of my favorite actors is this guy, Richard Gere. Can, can any women out there at least get with me on Richard Gere? I love Richard Gere. Not for the reasons you like Richard Gere. I like Richard Gere because he's done some awesome films. The Officer and a Gentleman I really love. Um, uh, what else? Uh, Pretty Woman. Uh, Shall We Dance. He's probably done 30, 40 films, probably more than that over his 30-plus-year career. But so in 2009, I started seeing these previews for this film that's on the board here. It's called Brooklyn's Finest, all right? And this film is about three pol very different police officers. Richard Gareth plays one. He's a 20-year veteran, has an alcohol problem, and is about ready for retirement. Ethan Hawke plays a cop who's really desperate. His family's living in a mold-infested house. He needs money quick to move his family. And then Don Cheeto's in too deep. He's an he's a undercover cop, but he's in too deep, and he wants to get out. So three very different cops. And so uh, uh, my, my oldest son, is 15, and I don't, you know, I don't do any research. I just know Richard Gere's in it and some other stars. So I go to, I get, we get in the car, we go to AMC, we go into the theater, you know, we watch all the previews. I'm ready to go. The first scene, Ethan Hawke's character, who is a police officer, and there's a some kind of criminal guy there, and Ethan Hawke's deference for money, right? So he takes his gun, shoots the guy in the head, right? Blood spattering on the scene. So I look over at my son, and I said, oh my God, okay. All right, so I said, well, it's gotta get better from here, Nick, right? It's gotta it get better, does. right? It always does. gotta get better. Always does. So it turns R out- R stands for redemptive. Yes, yes. It turns out that Richard Gere's best friend happens to be a woman of the evening. 
So this next scene is he's going to the place where the women of the evening work, and they're about to go in, and I say, oh, Jason, I think now we gotta go, you know? <laughs> so I never once thought to look at sites like Plugged In. I didn't even look to see that it was an R-rated film. All I was concerned about was that Richard Gere, one of my favorite actors, was doing the film. You know, I figured it'd be Pretty Woman or something, and Officer Dell. It was quite other than that, right? So we can't allow the things that, the, the, the people that we love, the characters that we see to take us away from things. The truth is that film was probably more mature. I, I probably shouldn't have even seen it myself as I look back on what the, what the film was doing. Um, so there's ways that we can be capture culture. The other ways is where we can be politically captured. Can you hit the next slide? Nick talked about this a little bit last time, so I won't have to go deep. But this is where we say our faith equals a certain political party, right? Equals a certain candidate. Versus looking at their platforms and doing the hard, serious work of trying to figure out what their economic policy is, what their views on social justice is, what their views on, on labor are, where their stand on things like the right to life, a whole platform of issues, right? And many of us will go to the, the political ballot box having seen just the sound bites and not having a good picture of what the candidate stands for holistically, right? We wanna avoid that. And so I wanna suggest to you that there's five questions that you should ask yourself so that you can avoid political and cultural capture. Here would be my five. What biblical principles should inform my decision? In this job, I get more time to read. And I, I caught myself getting out of balance. I was reading a lot of material from Christian authors about the Bible, but not the Bible. I had been doing this for over a year before I felt internally, I just felt like something was off. So the last couple of months, I've been reading my Bible religiously, Old Testament and New Testament. The God has been giving me words to, to help my kids, to counsel people, uh, to, to work. And so I'm, uh, God is in real time, he's given me things I read this morning that I can offer to people this afternoon. And so we've got to constantly have our hearts and minds open to the, the scripture and let it renew us. Secondly, do I have all the facts? I used that example about the film. All I knew was Richard Gere was in there. I didn't know anything else about the film. I didn't have the right facts to make a decision whether I should expose that film to my son. We gotta do our homework, can't be lazy. Third, what possible motives are driving my decision? Am I just driving by, you know, he's cute or, you know, I love, I love art or, or are there some deeper things? Am I able to ask myself some questions? So to, to, to uncover where I'm letting my flesh my, you know, what, what I kind of want, draw me away from what I know is right in Christ. Uh, what is the collective counsel of my community? What have you learned from the sermons? What have we learned in our small groups? What have you learned on campus from your crew and IV? Um, what, have, what are you learning as a community? When you run into difficult questions, do you seek others' opinions who, who you trust and know, know their Bibles? Are, are, is your community able to have an impact on how you decide? And then fifthly, is there a better option? There's certain things in our liberty that you can do, but they're not the best use of your time. Um, when, um, as a parent, I spent a lot of time working, and one of the things that bugged me is that there was a certain point when I had never coached one of my kids' teams, as if this was the standard to make a good parent, right? 
that you have to coach one of your kids' teams. But I did get to a place where I was real busy at work. I was real busy at church. And so I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, would you, would you give me just a period of time where I could coach, it was Jason was playing basketball, where I could coach his team, right? And I really felt God's peace, like, Lord, yeah, Lord, you can, you know, this isn't your life, but you just want to invest in your son and, and other people, right? Um, so, so sometimes we want to f- function. Is it the best option? It, I think it was good for me to coach that one time. I extended that coaching to, through the summer, um, and something happened um, that um, really convinced me that I was supposed to, after I finished this one semester, I was supposed to stop. I wasn't supposed to continue. That was the culture piece. So this can be nuanced. This is uh, the wisdom that comes from God. This is your conscience that tells you how to use your liberty effectively. Go ahead, Nate. If you look on the blog later, three and four, there's a really good section in that Robert Benning book about those. Um, Anyway, if you want to look at that. Um, one of the things that Benny talks about are areas where the church as a whole, like institutionally should speak publicly and not stay silent. Um, however, I think one of the things he spends a lot of time, and I really agree with this, is recognizing that clergy or people who are in full-time ministry, uh, it's very easy to, th- and it's very easy to think this if you're a Christian too, that because you know Jesus, you know everything. Right? A lot of people—and and and that's just a human thing. A lot of people think that because they're a Democrat or Republican or because they watch MSNBC or Fox News or they're the, you know, one of the three people that listens to NPR, that because of that, they, they know all— NPR. What? I love NPR. I know. I, it's, on, it's actually one of my buttons, but, um, but I think I'm so exclusive. Uh, so, but there's this sense that, like, because—I don't know everything. Yeah, because it's a complicated world. But the thing that's special about me is I, I have the right pipeline. And so I know the most relevant thing, and so I'm right. And so I can talk about things. And so you get, you get like, bishops and denominations, and you get pastors of churches, and you get Christians just thinking that because I'm a Christian, I know the right policy, and I know the right candidate. I know all this stuff. And it, rather than, like, okay, I'm trying to put this together. What do you think? And so I, I do think that— um, Pastors, especially in churches, need to be very careful about having a false sense of authority and even more importantly, a false sense of competence about things. I think churches are, do their best when they call attention to things, but they don't prescribe, they don't presume to have the right prescription for what should be done. And I think as much as we love to hate politicians and people in public service that are in charge of policies, it is enormously complex, and a lot of them are very good at it. And it turns out that the reason we think they're idiots is because it's extremely difficult to do the work that they do. They have one of the most difficult jobs on planet Earth. And to think, and it's so easy for people like me that because I think I'm morally right on something, that therefore I can prescribe a policy is beyond arrogant. But Christians do it all the time, and so do people who watch an hour of news a day, and people who, I don't know, whatever. We, it's just, it's, it's, humility would take us a long way. And so when I think that we speak as a church, I think the church can say, hey, look, this is happening. That's not okay. We can draw attention to things that are clearly moral evils and say, so what do we do about that? And what should we think about that? And what does the gospel say about that? Without necessarily saying, Governor Walker, you should, or whatever. And so I think that's really important. But there, Benny talks about four places he thinks the church has to speak. 
um, because they are fundamental enough and direct enough from the gospel that it's important to do so. The first is life for the weakest, which I primarily there, and so does he mean the unborn. But it would also include people who are disabled. It would include people who are the victims of widowhood or who are orphaned. It would include a wider spectrum of people who cannot defend their own life. Literally the most voiceless is the, is the one who still has mucus in their lungs, who's in the womb, right? But there are many people whose voice doesn't matter to the people it should matter to, and that should matter to us, because people are made in God's image. And the idea that people are made in God's image is so foundational to us. Second is for religious freedom. Oftentimes, some of us have been drawn into this idea that religious freedom is not an absolute first freedom. And that is wrong, okay? That is wrong. Um, there's, this one, there's this one place where Jesus says, and this is not generally the verse that people like to put up in the place where they want a warm, fuzzy verse, but he says, he goes to some people and he says, listen, do not be afraid of the person who can kill you, but who after he kills you can't do anything more to you. He said, rather be afraid of the one who can kill you, and in addition to that, after he's killed you, throw you in hell forever. Right? Which is not really positive, but direct. And then, but you know what he says right after that? And Luke's, this is in the Gospel of Luke. He says right after it. He says, don't you know that your Father in heaven sees all the birds of the air and all the grass in the fields? And he knows every single one of them, and none of them escapes his sight. And aren't you more valuable to him than any little bird? Do you see the juxtaposition? This enormously negative, but true, and enormously positive, encouraging statement put right together that God matters more. And whether or not somebody can kill you is not near the most important thing. Which means for us as individuals within ourselves, I'm not talking about what you can inflict on somebody else. I mean, within ourselves, what we have the most fundamental first freedom right to be as created in God's image is to be in conscience, morally what we're meant to be, even before being alive. Now, that doesn't mean you can inflict something that you believe is moral on somebody else, and if they don't want that, you can kill them. That's not what I'm saying, and the two are distinguishable. Within ourselves, our most fundamental freedom is to live according to conscience, and then to claim that we should be allowed to be alive. That is, we believe, biblically, that the nature of human beings is such that conscience— the right to conscience is the most fundamental first freedom within a person's self. And it's one of the reasons why it's in the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, because that was believed basically exclusive by everybody in the founding of our nation. I can't talk about that more right now. The third is a firm safety net for those who truly can't contribute for themselves. If this isn't controversial in America, what we argue about is for people who we think might, might be able to but don't want to provide for themselves, and under what circumstances should we try to encourage them to provide for themselves? That's what Republicans and Democrats are arguing about, conservatives and liberals. There, there is no—sometimes people pretend like there's, a contro- there's no controversy about that, okay? But also biblically there should be no controversy about that. We are charged to take care of widows and orphans, which is a catch-all for people who can't keep themselves alive without help. And Paul said, if you won't work, you don't get to eat. That is not, you didn't work, but you won't work, right? And then lastly, the affirmation of the traditional family as coextensive, in, in coextensive permanent family life. I have resisted this because it feels so political, because it seems kind of one-sided. I have come to be convinced that it's, it is a Christian truth, and I wish it wasn't very politically one-sided, and it's not entirely. But 
Christianly speaking, when we look at the Bible and God's provision for human beings in institutions, the family is the institution for all three of the ones that came before this. And we say that we are a culture that is for children, and we are not. Okay? We are a culture that has made divorce as easy as possible. We abort 1.3 million children every year. We pretend like we're for children. We're not. That's why who knows how long it'll go on before we fix the public school system. We'll deal with certain economic policies. We won't fix education. Right? Why? And here's one of the issues related to that. And, And divorce is what tells the whole story. Because what is the number one most fundamental right for every child? One, it's to make it out of the womb. The second most fundamental right for any child, Christianly speaking, is to live in close proximity and be cared for in a comprehensive care in the home by both of their biological parents. That is the most fundamental right of every child. And we don't seem to live like that culturally, and and we should. It is one of the most fundamental human truths that should exist. And for that reason, and a number of others, I think we have to speak about the family, at least modeling it profoundly within the church culture. But also to speak persuasively, I think Ryan Anderson's book on marriage is the best Christian and persuasive written for a secular audience that I've seen. It's short, it's very clear, and it's not polemical. I would recommend it if, you, if, you, um, if you're under 50, honestly. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So Nick touched on our, our choices. How do even Christians live in the world, right? There, all the data I've seen suggests that there's no real distinguishing data between the divorce rate of us who know Christ and the divorce rate of those who don't. 37%, 38%. Evangelical right. Christians, 37%. Atheists, 38% in America right now. So, so what, where does holiness and godliness fit into our Christian lives? How does it impact our lives? Christians are to live righteously in the world, consistent with the scriptures, for the purpose of pleasing God and redeeming the world. I want to read from you uh, a, a little a small section, perhaps three minutes, from a book both Nick and I are reading called The Testament of Hope. In this particular excerpt, Dr. King is given a speech in 1957 at the University of California, Berkeley, on invitation of the YWCA and YMCA students. It's all students. And he's explaining his philosophy of nonviolence. Now, King is both a, a Baptist minister and an activist, right? So he's constantly kind of balancing between philosopher and Christian authority speaker, right? So you judge for yourself how well you think Dr. King does in terms of speaking publicly on, with authority on the issue of nonviolence. From the very beginning, there was a philosophy undergirding the Montgomery boycott, the philosophy of nonviolent resistance. There was always the problem of getting this method across because it didn't make sense to a lot of people in the beginning. We had to use our mass meetings to explain nonviolence to a community of people who had never heard of the philosophy and in many instances were not sympathetic with it. We had to make it clear that nonviolent resistance is not a method of cowardice. It does resist. This is not a method of stagnant passivity and deadening complacency. King had a way with words. This nonviolent resistor is just as opposed to the evil that he is standing against as the violent resistor, but he resists without violence. This method is non-aggressive physically, but strongly aggressive spiritually. 
Another thing we had to explain was the fact that the nonviolent resistor does not seek to humiliate or to defeat the opponent, but to win his friendship and understanding. This was always a cry that we had to set before the people that our aim is not to defeat the white community, not to humiliate the white community, but to win the friendship of all, of all persons who had perpetrated this system in the past. The end of violence or the aftermath of violence is bitterness. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation and the creation of a beloved community. A boycott is never an end within itself. It is merely a means to awaken the sense of shame within the opponent. But the end is reconciliation and redemption. So Christ, so, so, so King was after this beloved community. And he speaks very clearly on biblical terms, reconciliation to Christ, redemption in Christ. Then we had to make it clear also that the nonviolent resistor seeks to attack the evil system rather than the individuals who happen to be caught up in the system. Look at this not thinly veiled reference to Ephesians 6, verse 12. And this is why I say from time to time that the struggle in the South is not so much the tension between white people and Negro people. The struggle is rather between justice and injustice, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And if there is to be a victory, it will not be a victory merely for 50,000 Negroes, but it will be a victory of justice, a victory for goodwill, a victory for democracy. Um, he was really trying to talk about the philosophy of love. So last paragraph, his, his theology on love. King's theology on love. The Greek language uses three words for love. It talks about eros. Eros is a sort of aesthetic love. It, it has come to be a sort of romantic love, and it stands with all of its beauty. But when we speak of loving those who oppose us, we're not talking about eros. The Greek language talks about philia, and this is a sort of reciprocal love between personal friends or between buddies. This is vital, valuable love. But when we talk of loving those who oppose you, those who seek to defeat you, we are not talking about eros or philia. The Greek language comes out with another word, and it is agape. Agape is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. Biblical theologians would say it is the love of God working in the minds of men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. And when you come to love on this level, you begin to love men not because they are likable, not because they do the things that attract us, but because God loves them. And here we love the person who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the, the person does. Does that ring with some of the themes that Nick has been talking about in terms of the image of God? That every unborn child, every human being, despite their culture or class, has value because God's image is in them. So we should love them because God loves them and created them with dignity. It is this type of love that stands at the center of the movement that we are trying to carry on in the Southland, agape. So godliness or personal virtue is one of the means by which you and I, we Christians, seek to, seek to reconcile men to Christ and to participate in God's creation of a beloved community. So we have the message of the gospel and we take hell when necessary not as passive people, but actively to demonstrate our love and to help reconcile people to Christ. 
If we, if we do anything of value that helps sustain and preserve what is good and beautiful in society, it will be because we have lived virtuous lives, sometimes in the face of stiff cultural opposition, with love at the center of our movement. One of the reasons why um, focusing, therefore, on character is so important is that as um, especially evangelical, or I would say historical biblical Christian faith, is becoming more disenfranchised in American culture, especially in very secular cities like Madison. What, what disenfranchised tends to produce in all human beings who experience it is a sense of victimhood, right? Yep. Like I'm yes. being victimized, yep. that you're being mean to me. And um, victimhood, that attitude undermines virtue terribly. When you expect, accept the role of a victim, you accept a fundamental passivity. And virtue is so fundamentally active that the two aren't compatible. And so as Christians begin to feel more disenfranchised and people are being mean to them and like I'm getting pushed around, there's a sense of like I shouldn't be pushed around. Why are you pushing me around? And then you get these sort of very unhelpful reactions publicly. But you also get this sense of victimhood and victimhood destroys virtue. The two are not deeply compatible within the human spirit. And it begins to destroy discipline, which is necessary to deliver on virtue. And so it's extremely important that as we get, maybe, hopefully not progressively more disenfranchised, but if we do, we need to be ready for that outcome. And we need to be incredibly stalwart against an attitude of victimization. Um, And the Bible gives us an enormous amount of resources for that. The Bible is mostly disenfranchised people who are being wrongly hurt, who aren't being listened to, who are being treated badly. We, when you're enfranchised, though, you just don't notice that. <laughs> but fear not. The meaner people get to us, the more of the Bible will make sense to us. That's the good news, yeah. right? And so sometimes uh, folks that do what Nick and I do for a living can fall into the arrogant trap of thinking that if the tr- culture is going to be one for Jesus, it's going to be because, you know, Nick preaches these great sermons and, you know, I pray for a bunch of people or whatever, right? But the truth is that you working in the places where God has placed you and living beautifully out in the world is where the redemption and reconciliation is going to be most felt in society. It comes from you. Uh, next slide, Nick. In 1975, Bill Bright on the left, uh, founder of Campus Crusade, Lauren Cunningham, founder of Youth with with Mission YWAM, and on the right, Francis Schaeffer, uh, were coming to some uh, recognitions around the same time. In 1975, Bill Bright and Lauren got together for lunch, and it just so turned out that God was sharing a central message with them about how society could be one for Christ. Even in the 70s, they were concerned that the Christians were losing our influence on society. And there were, they, they saw some real changes in America going forward and were wondering how could, how could they change? How could things be redeemed? How could they, we, we stand for Christ? And so they were receiving some things. At the same time, Francis Schaeffer, theologian and philosopher in his own right, was receiving a similar kind of message. Next slide, please. And so the two came up with, in particular Bright and Cunningham, came up with this notion of the seven pillars of, for society. How can we as Christians impact the world for Jesus. These seven, real quickly, government, where evil in society is either restrained or endorsed. Education, where truths or lies about God and his creation are taught. Media, where information is interpreted through different lenses, sometimes good or evil or some, some middle ground, right? Arts and entertainment, where values and virtue are either celebrated or distorted. Religion 
Will people worship God in spirit and truth or settle for some form of religious moralism? Family. Will people are nurtured from the womb in an environment that worship and honors God or ignores his existence and business? This is the mountain that fuels and funds them all. It is where people build for the glory of God or for the glory of man. So I want to say to you briefly what I think the church can do to help redeem society. Real briefly, I want to talk about a couple things. One of the things is that preachers like Nick and I need to tell you, we need to preach to you Colossians 3, 22 through 25, which essentially says that wherever God has paced you in your ministry, whether you professor or a psychologist or student, nurse, janitor, that, that you're in full-time ministry. That means that you are a full representative of Christ, that you are an ambassador, you are salt and light where you are. We preachers need to tell, need to reinforce that, that you're serving God even when you're not working in whatever nursery or small group ministry. Secondly, you need to internalize that you are an ambassador for Christ. And I think that means two things. First, it means that you need to be excellent in the work that you do. God says in verse uh, Colossians 3, around 23, work at it with all of your heart. So if you're a student, you need to be the best student, best janitor, best lawyer. How does that impact the gospel for Christ? Well, of course, it gives you a stronger platform when it shows that you care enough about your work and the people that you support and your customers, that shines light favorably on you and on the gospel. And the second is this, that in the place where you are, you ought not be ashamed of the gospel. I remember when I worked at AmFam, I'd be startled sometimes to find out that there were other Christians that worked in my area that I just didn't know they were there. And we talked many times, but it never came around to what we were doing uh, for church or what we believed in Jesus. You should not be ashamed of the gospel in the place where you are. I'm not saying be annoying, be always on the attack. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it should be clear, just like you're a UW graduate if you are, that you are a Christian. So those are, those are some of the basic fundamental things that I think yeah, that, I yeah, go right, go right ahead. Um, how well you do your job is the main window most coworkers have on your integrity. And so if the reality of your character is one of the things people have to buy into, um, how you do your job is their main window on your character. That's what they think of you. And um, I think that's all I'll say about that. All right. I want to talk about some, some examples today, living examples of how workplace people, when I say workplace ministers, I mean not full-time people like those who work at the church or even the people that work at Crew or NAV. I'm talking about people that work out there in, in the world and don't have the luxury of doing it for, for Jesus 100% of the time. I want to talk about how certain workplace ministers, some examples of things that are going on. Uh, Gabe Lyons uh, came up with a vision. He was inspired by something said by Chuck Colson. You remember, some of you will know Chuck Colson was in the Nixon administration broke the law, went to prison, and came out uh, in prison, came to Christ, and has a dynamic ministry. Chuck said this, he says, Christians are called to redeem entire cultures and not just individuals. So Chuck was concerned that we were just in our own little enclave in the, in the church and not trying to impact society. And uh, Gabe responded to this with his wife. And he says this, Gabe says, the next wave of Christian influence will come 
from the pews and not from the pulpit. So in 2007, he established this Q Commons movement where they have small groups and in, in cities, they bring speakers on all kinds of dynamic topics uh, like politics and, and, and life and healthcare and economy and economics. And they talk about this not just from a Christian perspective, but also just from a, a perspective of, of uh, embracing and, and us learning more about what's going on in the world. And so it's a very dynamic discussion that he has started in 2007. And his wife has got a similar movement. It's the Q movement for women. So it's the same kind of thing. How do we impact the culture? How do we impact the, the church? How do they impact their, their families for Christ? Uh, next slide, please, Nick. Um, just recently, a workplace minister, Steve Cook, who runs a business called Capital Chaplains, Steve's uh, is doing this very same thing. He is going out to small business owners and saying, let me help your employees talk through process life. And then of course, if they do, he's able to share his biblical worldview with these employees. So that's his way of how he's addressing this. He introduced us to this ministry by Steve and Laurel Brown. Steve Brown uh, has apartments, 57 apartments that house 2,500 2, residents. He's a UW um, graduate and who believes three things about his, his business. He's a Christian who attends Blackhawk. Three things he believes. He says, I'm an owner, not a landlord, who seeks to provide exemplary service for his residents. So I want to provide excellence for my residents. That's number one. Number two, he's an employer who honors his employees. He loves, respects, honors his employees. Number three, he is a part of the UW and Madison communities that never stops giving back. So one of the ways that he's given back is right in Campus Town. Next slide. He's established this ministry he calls the Upper House. And one of his most valuable properties, he's dedicated about 5,000 square feet. And in that 5,000 square feet, he's got an auditorium with state-of-the-art media, meeting rooms. And what he's trying to do is bring academics, professors, administrators, business people together to, to talk about what's going on and how the gospel and the Bible could influence it. So he wants dynamic discussions where there's a dialogue and very he's focused providing. on integrating those seven areas. So he'll bring in non-Christian, the, the goal is to bring right non-Christian business students with a Christian business person to talk about business. Yes. Right? And to create that kind of integration. So these are just three examples. I talked about capital chaplaincy with Steve Cook and how he's trying to impact culture. The Q movement and how they're trying to impact culture and the upper house movement. So the question becomes really for all of us, how are we, how are you as workplace Christians gonna impact the culture for Christ? Giving all the vibrancy and intelligence and opportunities Jesus has given you. Yeah. Um, okay, so the next thing is this. Um, I believe the next application we need to think about is deep Christian solidarity with those denied first freedoms, especially the freedom of religious faith in relationship to exercise and conscience. Um, you may not believe that the first or second largest human rights problem in the world is that people do not have freedom of religious exercise and conscience. I would argue that you're wrong if you think that, and that it is quickly becoming a real problem here in the United States 
um, a country that was founded mainly on the premise, especially in a number of the northern colonies, on finding a bastion in the world where people really could have religious freedom. Let me, give you a, let me just give you a couple examples in case you think that I just want to push a couple unrelated things. Um, Pew has done research on um, what countries have high or very high restriction on religious freedom. You'll see that in relationship to countries, only 32% of modern countries have high or very high restrictions on religious freedom. But those 32, that 32% of countries actually contains 70% of the world's population. So 70% of the world's population this minute lives in countries that have high or very high restrictions on religious freedom. But in addition to that, in what we would normally call the home of the free and the land of the brave, there is very strong increasing restriction on the American, the American Christian or religious person's freedom of conscience and expression, especially if you go outside of the doors of the church, um, which is why people who, I think, are properly civically educated on this, never say freedom of worship. You will never hear me say freedom of worship. That is not the right we're talking about. But the, the freedom of religion, that is the freedom to be of your religion in the exercise of it in all things and in conscience. So in case you think I'm blowing this out of proportion, just, just give me three minutes, okay? Wedding cases. Baron L. Stutzman, Washington DA, has sued to take away her business and to make her pay damages out of her private residence, including her home, because she didn't do flowers for a gay wedding. Though she has gay employees and she sells flowers to um, openly gay people all the time, even for romantic uses. New Mexico wedding photographer also declined to do a gay wedding because it conflicted with the way she ran her business. Um, she lost her case in New Mexico. She was fined, and the judge said in the case that doing what she's told in this matter is the, quote, price of citizenship in America. The Colorado master peace case shop, he lost his case, he was fined, and he was ordered himself and his employees to undergo re-education, which for those of us old enough to remember communism just makes your blood run cold. Liberty Ridge Farm in Pennsylvania has gay employees, has gay functions on their campus, a lesbian couple came and asked if they could have their wedding and their reception there. They said, you can absolutely have your reception here, but because of our views about marriage in relationship to our biblical faith, you can't have the vow ceremony on our, on our campus. I'm sorry. Um, they were fined $13,000. They had to stop offering services to the public. Oregon Suites by Melissa. She was attacked publicly for... Um, providing food for an organization that talks about counseling for people with same-sex attractions that don't want them um, and wish to seek counseling for that. Um, the Atlanta fire chief, Kelvin Cochran, who if you read the New York Times about this, they did openly lie about that situation. Um, he wrote a book. He's a deacon in his church. He handed it out to co-workers who came to his church and received them there. In this full-length book on the Christian life, there are two sentences, including homosexual expression in relationship to the whole panoply of Christian sexual ethics. For that, he was summarily fired for creating an unworkable work environment, even though a formal inquiry showed that there was absolutely no evidence of real discrimination with anyone, right? He's recently um, sued for discrimination, but he does, he's, does not and will not have his job back. Um, 
numerous, there's numerous speech ordinances. Omar Mahmoud, who is a, um, a columnist and um, Muslim on the University of Michigan campus, recently wrote an article sort of making fun of the extremes of sort of secular speech controls on college campuses. For that, he was summarily fired from his newspaper job for publishing an opinion column in the university newspaper. He also had his apartment vandalized, including raw eggs and things like that because of his opinion about these things. InterVarsity Christian Fellowships knows very well about how many um, campuses are throwing Christian organizations off if they have any doctrinal requirements for what you have to believe if you're going to be in leadership, including places like Rutgers, Georgetown, all of the California state schools, SUNY Buffalo, University of Michigan, Vanderbilt, Tufts, Bowdoin, including one of the UW schools up north, I think Superior. Rights of medical professionals to function according to conscience, for example, to see a fetus as a patient that they can't kill. In one study recently done, they quoted this um, opinion official, quote, a doctor's conscience has little place in the delivery of modern medical care, and quote, if people are not prepared to offer legally permitted, efficient, and beneficial care to a patient because it conflicts with their values, they should not be doctors. Church sign discrimination lawsuits, um, there's this, the Supreme Court actually has to hear this case. That is, that in a number of places in the United States, there are city ordinances that church signs can't be bigger than this, even though campaign signs can be 10 feet by 12 feet. And that's okay. Um, the Houston pastors, if you remember last fall, who were—that's the third largest urban metropolis in America. The pastors—a number of pastors had their sermons subpoenaed by the mayor— to see if they were in keeping with one of the ordinances of that city. Christian t-shirt manufacturer that was sued because he didn't provide printed t-shirts for a gay pride parade. Christian adoption agencies kicked out of numerous states for their views on the family, considered discriminatory. Calvary Christian Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia that was not issued a permit in order to care for disabled children because the city said that it was dangerous even though they could not issue a valid reason why. Holly, Michigan, public school children told they could not hand out flyers to a church summer camp, even though all other nonprofit, public, and ethics-based things like 4-H and Boy Scouts and all those could hand things out, which is, of course, not legal. There are atheist lawsuits in Oahu and in Michigan where churches or schools are being sued for allowing churches to be in them, saying that whatever amount was being charged to the church that the church and the school had agreed upon was defrauding the public— because whatever that amount that was, it was too little. Jacksonville Beach, the refusal of allowing a church to actually build its building that was completely within zoning because they didn't want another church in the downtown. This also happened in Evanston a few years ago. I don't know if you remember that. Evanston Vineyard bought this multi-million dollar property. It went to either the state Supreme Court or the actual Supreme Court before the justice was like, this is crazy, this is illegal, you have to let them build their church. There is the Mozilla CEO, Brandon Ike, who because he privately gave a donation in support of Proposition 8 to support traditional marriage, lost his job as CEO of Mozilla. That is, you can't work, you can't have a high-profile job. In fact, the guy, um, the mayor of Atlanta said, you can't be in a public position 
and hold these views. Recently, just this week, a judge ruled that you can't, if you are a judge in California, you can't be a member of the Boy Scouts because of how terribly discriminatory the Boy Scouts are because they don't allow for openly gay scoutmasters. It is now going to, you will will lose your place on the bench, and I think it's January of 2016 if you haven't fixed that. Um, There's other ones I don't have time for. Um, Restrictions on military chaplains and others. Um, These just stream bias in the news so fast that it's very difficult for us to realize how much of this is happening. And it's, it's termed very cleverly, but listen, this is, this is discrimination against a first human freedom of religion and free expression. Now, listen, I am also for gay rights. Rights are fundamentally negative in ways people are not allowed to interfere with you because of your legitimacy as an individual. And I am for those rights be afforded to everybody, and I think we should be the first person to speak up when other people aren't getting them, that are legitimate individual rights. However, um, if, if you want to live in a place that is religiously free, um, you're going to have to do something. And I, listen, I'm from one of those generations that does not want my voice co-opted, and how can I trust these people to ask me to call people, and isn't this a fundraising thing, and, you know, and there is a lot of fundraising junk. It's like every time something like that. But listen, um, people who get together and act change things. And if you, if you don't use your voice, and if you don't do anything, this is very clearly going a particular way. Um... And I'll just tell you, I, I had to get over this myself. I did an enormous amount of reading on this stuff so that I could speak clearly about it. Um, I, I do speak up when I think it's appropriate. I also give financially to an organization called the Alliance Defending Freedom because they are the lawyers in most of these cases arguing all over the country and before the Supreme Court. I, I financially donate because I think these things have to be defended. And, like, I hate, I hate it, but I, I write representatives, and I make the phone calls when certain people that I think are non-hysterical, but real, strong, and thinking leaders in this movement put a call out to me to do so. Because I, 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 I know that most of us don't like that. Um, but that, that's the price of advocacy. That's how it works, guys. And if we're like, well, I don't want to be to this, or I don't want to be associated with that, or if I stand up for religious freedom, people are going to think I'm a Republican, um, and I sure you don't want that. I Listen, I get that. I get that. You don't want, and you don't want to be co-opted. But you have to be able to distinguish in your mind between things that are fundamentally moral issues that are clear, even if whoever you would normally support doesn't support that one. Um, there, there are things that the, the political party I tend to vote for and support, I am totally against them on. And I advocate against them on. Because I'm not owned by that party, I'm owned by Christ. And when that party goes along with it, good for them. And I'll go along with them that far. Does that make sense? Okay, I don't have more time to talk more about that. Without uh, intending, what, what I think Nick has done is gave an apologetic or uh, given a reason why we need Christian judges, Christian lawyers, Christian city council members, 
Christian school superintendents. We need Christians to be involved in all the facets of society if we're expected to make traction so that public policy uh, reflects what we think is right in God's eyes. We want to be involved in that. Uh, I'm going to, this next subject is about unity. The other thing we need is if we're going to make traction on some of these issues that Nick has talked about, we've got to have unity within the church and across churches. We've got to be united with churches like City Church or Mount Zion or Blackhawk or Good Shepherd, even across denominations in areas where we can reach common ground. Next slide, please, Nate. And then no time for this with next one. There's a movie that uh, is out now called Selma. And it is the story of Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Council and its attempt to um, get voters' rights and civil rights in the state of Alabama. And um, uh, what, what happens is they, they mobilize a group of people. Dr. King moves to Selma. They do their normal organizing. And they get a groundswell of African-American people who are dying for, uh, for their rights, right? And they make this march. They, they attempt to make this five-day, 54-mile march. And it's met with resistance by the governor and the state troopers. And there's a bloody aftermath. So what King does is they kind of rethink their strategy. And they say, we're fully committed to this nonviolent resistance. And what King does next is he calls out a call to everybody in the country. He says, listen, if you believe that our cause is just, if you believe that we're not just talking about rights for a subsection of people, but really rights for all Americans, won't you come to Selma, right? And so what happens almost overnight over the next few days is college students, and people of all kinds of, of, of religions. Um, and so you have, uh, uh, you, you have Jews, you have uh, Lutherans, you have Methodists, people just broke, you have Catholic nuns, all coming. You, you have business people, lawyers, all facets of life come to be a part of this coalition. And what you see here is the scene of the triumphant march that they made without incident from Selma to Birmingham that was done through this new coalition. So what I want to suggest to you is this, is that we must have unity in Christ. We must have unity in what is in righteous if we are going to make progress in these areas. And so you and I should be looking for partners amongst people who may sometimes not be partners, amongst people who may not be partners on every issue. Why should you do this? Because for, for love's sake, you should do it. Why should you do this? Because it is also practical. This is how things get done. And so we want to advocate for unity. Yeah. So, oh, and, and he knows that the marches to Montgomery. He's just, he's trying to think and speak. And he yeah, just said thanks. Birmingham. Thanks for that. Um, for correction on the Birmingham yeah. versus um, uh, Montgomery. I just used to live in Alabama, yeah. so it's, it's a long ways. Um, so uh, let me wrap this up in relationship to our church, because I think personally all of us have to reckon with this ourselves. What kind of virtue are we willing to have within victimization if we become more disenfranchised? We need to deal with that. That's a 20-year issue we need to deal with personally, right? We need to recognize in terms of personal faith, do we fear those who can kill us or, or stigmatize us or tell us that we're bigots or whatever? Or do we fear the one who can do a whole lot more than that negatively and positively? He, we're much more important to him than the tiniest little bird in the farthest country, right? But in terms of a local church, what do we need to be together? And, there's, and, and so 
as all of us are meant to live out the creation mandate in the world, as a church together, we have to be the redemptive community that is bringing people to the message of Jesus so that they can re-embrace the creation mandate together, which means not only do we all individually need to live in the city and do what we can and try to build into and be what we are in such a way that it impacts culture, but we need to build the church. We need to build the church. And um, I'll just tell you right now, no matter how good things go at High Point Church, one of the, the worst thing that could happen for the church in Madison is to have, is to 20 years from now have five mega churches. That all the little churches kind of close, everybody just kind of sorts, and we win, we get to be one of the five, and there's five mega churches. And so there's only five targets to shoot at. There's only five leader, point leaders that could fall and destroy everything. There's only, it's not good. It's not good. And um, we want hundreds of churches in Madison to do well. And so that's the reasons why, as long as I'm the pastor here, we will be deeply committed to being a teaching church. To train leaders for all kinds of churches. Um, we have one pastoral fellow, Vince Pieri, who's coming this year. We have two um, pastoral interns that are here right now. One's about going to start in May and one's here right now. We have, I think, five other ministry interns. There's um, another person who may come as a pastoral fellow who's at church this morning that we're putting the full court press on. And that is just part of who we're going to be because I want to train people who can do everything I can do and then send them to another church so they can compete with me. Because more churches lead more people to Christ. Okay. Um, secondly, um, we will be increasingly part of church planting. We will be investing in our competition. We want more churches. We want church plants because church plants lead more people to Christ. They try stuff you won't let me try, and when it works there, then I can bring it here. There's all kinds of reasons why it's important. We need almost every year for the gospel to grow in our city, we need almost 10% of the total number of churches, we need almost that many church plants just to not lose ground. And Madison, I've been here four and a half years, it is a church planter graveyard. Okay? And so we are going to be involved in that. Also, we're going to be involved in building the church globally. Um, my goal is that in the next five years, we will go from giving 10% of our total budget to missions to 15. I have a plan for that. I've been working on it. I know we can get there, but here's the only way it can happen is if you not only give generously, but you also volunteer generously. Because if you give generously, but you don't volunteer generously, we've got to hire more staff for you to be happy. And all that money goes into staffing. And staff in America are enormously expensive. Okay? If we are a volunteer-driven church, we do it ourselves, and we give generously, enormous amounts of money can go to other people who are doing the work and who will do it better than us all over the world. And then um, I have a couple other things I'm mulling over that I'll talk about in that thing if you want to hear about it. But I think um, we, need to, we need to be absolutely firm that we are a church. We are an independent church. We're not part of the denomination, right? We have to be a church that knows we're part of something bigger and that everybody who comes here knows we know it because we act like it. And because this is a transient city, people come and they go, which is awesome. We lose 10% of this church every year. Every year, 10% of this church disappears. And that's not the people I offend and leave. That's like another 15%, okay? Yeah. I'm talking about just, just because this is Madison, 10% of people come, which means think about the influence. Think about this. Like there's this three, four-year cycle. People come in, they stay three years ago. Think about that. The, the level of impact we could have as a church 
with these people coming through, us preaching, training, discipling, helping, giving them opportunities, raising them up, doing everything we can to invest them, and then off they go. And we go, we work so hard, we can't grow. Wouldn't that be amazing if for 20 years we were this stagnant church that nobody knew was incredibly vital in sending people all over the country and world? Not even as missionaries that we're paying for even. We'll do some of that. But people who just come, they grow, and they go. And the church they go to gets incredibly blessed by it. That opportunity is right here for us. Didn't you always, since you became a Christian, want to be part of a church like that? Why, why be cynical about what a church can be? Why believe this church is going to be like the other churches that we didn't, we weren't that inspired by? Right? We can be that church. I think in some ways we're becoming that church. And I think that if we recognize our goal is to be ambassador exiles, ready to be what we were meant to be, firm in personal faith, committed to the community of the church that we're meant to be, to empower the creation mandate in all of us and in all those around us, I think it'll produce something amazing in our city. And I honestly, the world isn't as big as you think it is. Is it pie in the sky to say we could change the world? Yeah, sort of, but I like pies. <laughs> right? The world is smaller than you think it is. I remember when, a few years back, I remember running into all these amazing Christians, and I'd be like, where did you become that kind of Christian? And they'd say the church name. And you know, after 10 years, I realized it was only five churches. I was all going all over the country. I talked to these people, and they're all from Park Church in Boston. Like, Saddleback and this. There's, it's like just a couple of churches. Sending people all over the country, changing the church in the entire United States. There's no reason we can't be one of those churches. There's no reason we're going to be one of those churches. Let's pray. Father, um, please help us to not be cynical, to embrace being ambassador exiles, to see that as a grace gift. You are an exile in your own creation, it says in John, that you came to that which was your own, and they did not recognize you. And we are in your creation, and we know it doesn't recognize you, and it doesn't recognize us, and we don't recognize us half the time. But we pray that by your Spirit, the truth of the gospel, and by your providential leading of us, we would be what we were meant to be. Personally, infused into the culture in every place, committed to the city, pouring ourselves out sacrificially, being a, a dynamic counterculture, and being the church that we were meant to be. Please help us. We're going to go right to the close. Yeah, we better. Uh,